everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, we're back. Uh, we got another lightning rounds for you. Uh, last time we talked about all things vascular access, all the many tubes and catheters you could put into a patient's vascular system. And we thought we'd keep the ball rolling and talk about some non-vascular bedside procedures, some of the things we do in the ICU that don't involve uh, getting into veins and arteries. Um so there's kind of a hodgepodge of these, but I think some of the more common ones involve, you know, draining fluids. Um, one would be paracentesis. Um, Brian, do you do a lot of these? I don't know that I do a lot of them, but I, I do a fair amount, yeah. Uh, in the surgical ICU, we see a lot of people with uh, ascites collections that need to be drained for, for whatever reason. I actually just did one uh, last week, so... You know, I'm interested to hear you say that because I I would have said that it's a more common procedure in more of a medical type setting. <clears throat> yeah, it may be. Uh, maybe it's just my patient population. The one I did recently was in the thoracic ICU, but it was a patient who was a liver failure patient. So I guess that is more of a MICU type setting. They just maybe to it's have just how surgery. many patients you have that are you know have liver disease because yeah. I actually the last place I worked um, we saw medical and surgical patients but for whatever reason their their catchment just didn't seem to have a lot of liver disease yeah so there weren't a whole lot of paras whereas where I was before that there was like a million like every day be, be, be doing paras yeah well I see a lot of liver transplant patients too and I'm trying to think right now if we do a lot on those guys in the immediate post op period and I think. Probably yes, um, but actually, I think most of them are done by the liver surgeons, not the ICU team. Um, but I feel like I do a, a decent amount on um, liver transplants and colorectal surgery or surgical oncology patients. Um, so, so would you say you're typically doing them for diagnostic reasons or, or therapeutically? Probably a combination of the two. Um, really, I think therapeutic is usually the impetus to do the procedure. Um, but then often we say we should send the stuff, uh, you know, for diagnosis as well. So this this one recently was more of a diagnostic, uh, looking for a source of sepsis kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's the most common for me as well. And I'm trying to to be more aggressive with that. Some of you probably heard the episode we did with Elliot Tapper about, uh, about cirrhosis and liver failure in the ICU. And I mean, that's really what the hepatologists are trying to push these days. I mean, if you show up in the hospital and you get admitted and you have ascites and, and I mean, almost just if you have ascites, but certainly ascites in any whiff of the possibility of any sort of infection, or if you're ill for almost any reason, just stick a needle in and, get a sample of the ascites and prove they don't have SBP because it's so common that, that they do. And it's such a protean presentation. So I'm trying to be a, a little more uh, aggressive with that. What's uh, what's your technique usually for these? So for paras, I tend to use the, we have, it's called a safety synthesis catheter. Uh, I don't know what the generic term for it would be, but it's a, it's sort of a catheter over a needle, but it's this kind of blunt needle that you can actually dissect bluntly. And so it reduces the risk of damage to adjacent structures. 
Um, yeah, you know we have the, it. Kind of has a little a little blunt trocar thing yeah. that pops out after you break through. Right, you're breaking through. Right. Yeah. So if you're applying the right amount of pressure, it'll go through, but not uh, not puncture like bowel or whatever. Um, so that's what I typically use for that. Um, Will you always use that, or if you're doing a purely diagnostic one, would you use something smaller? Um, I think I don't think I. I think I always have used the safety synthesis. I don't know that I would necessarily, if I was simply doing a diagnostic, um, you could probably get away with just using a, a regular needle, like a small needle and a syringe. Um, I think typically we do, if I'm going to do it one, it's going to be therapeutic or at least quasi-therapeutic, right? We may say, well, it's going to be for diagnosis, but while we're in there, let's take a, a little bit off to help their breathing or whatever. Yeah, and that's I guess that's often what I do if I am using a larger catheter like that. But I, th- I think I have gotten more towards doing purely diagnostic ones in some cases because it it really is quicker and easier um, because that opens the door to using a, a much smaller device. Because mm-hmm. um, I I do think I mean this is a, a generally a safe procedure, but people do occasionally have complications, and it's usually bleeding complications, and it's usually um, because someone nicked a vessel in the abdominal wall. Right. And, you know, people with cirrhotics and stuff will sometimes have larger vessels. Um, and, it, I mean, I think it is higher risk to the, the larger device you use. Um, so what I've started doing sometimes recently, I've used a, a micropuncture kit sometimes. Really interesting. Uh, like you'd use for vascular access. Just uh, go in with the, the needle, and it's just a very small needle. And you almost could just aspirate some fluid with that. Or, you know, place a wire through, put the micro sheath in there, and then you have just a, a, a small uh, little sheath and you can aspirate off whatever fluid you want. If you're going to pull out five liters, it would be a giant pain in the butt. But if you're just going to get a sample, it's right. just fine. And you could spend another couple minutes and take off, you know, three, four, five hundred cc's just manually if you cared to. But, I mean, I do think that if someone doesn't have really pretty taut ascites and, you know, maybe they have a liter or something in there. I don't know if it's worth my time to go and try to suck that out. I can't imagine it's caused them too much trouble. And I mean, it could be kind of a pain in the butt. You, you go and try to suck it all out of there and stuff. But um, I think you could use something else like use like a spinal needle a couple times. I think it is nice to have something with a catheter. So you're not just holding a sharp needle in there, right. you know, ad infinitum. Um, but I, I like the micropuncture thing. I, I think uh, I'm, I've been a fan of that. Well, that's interesting. I, I use the micropuncture all the time for vascular access. I, I just put one in the other night, um, but I've never thought about using it for anything for other procedures. That's a good idea. Yeah, try it out. Do, now, you use ultrasound? Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you. I, uh, I So I typically do ultrasound to identify the pocket, but I don't use real-time visualization very often. That's how I, that's how I was taught, yeah. And the guys who taught me, you know, their view was it it almost can be less safe to do it under real-time guidance because um, you, you kind of want two hands on the needle for right. most of these long needles. Um, so it's challenging. Now, I, I do think that if you're, if you're quite good at using the ultrasound, and especially in more technically challenging cases, like it's kind of a small pocket or something, this applies to maybe Thoris too, um, it it might be good to do it with real time guidance, and I have started doing that um, a bit more at times. But I agree. Usually, you could just find a pocket, mark the skin. I like to just 
press the skin with the tip of a syringe for like 20 yeah. seconds and then it leaves you a little bullseye um, and then you go for that. Yeah. And like you were saying, especially with these, I don't, you know, I don't, most of my experiences with this safety synthesis, which was a fairly long needle. Um, and you really do need two hands to control it. Well, right. You need one hand to kind of hold it down towards the skin and advance. Cause part of the problem too, is if you advance with that blunt trocar too, too hard, you put too much pressure and it actually causes it to be sharp again. Um, so it sort of helps to, to have that second hand to guide. I think the one time that I have done it in a real time that I can think of, um, I had someone else hold the probe. So I still had two hands on the needle with someone else holding the probe in place. Uh, right. But like you said, most of the time I feel like real time visualization is not needed. You just, okay. uh, it, unless like you said, if it's a really small pocket, in which case then I'm like, is it worth doing? Cause again, most of the ones I'm doing are for at least quasi therapeutic reasons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There is uh, some, uh, what, like a de minimis amount of fluid where you start to wonder, is it still possible? This could be SP <laughs> like if it's one CC in there, could it be SPP? Right. I don't know. Uh, where do you where do you usually puncture? Just wherever you see a pocket, or yeah. So I sort of look for the best place. Now with a lot of these folks, if you shift them around, you can sort of shift the pocket around somewhat. Uh, yeah. But typically, I'm looking in one of two places, and that's sort of this lower kind of halfway to lower third of the abdomen uh, on the kind of if you were to extend sort of the mid axillary line down into the into the abdomen that area sort of lower quadrant uh, but not uh, not all the way to the side yeah i agree and certainly you'd think that it would usually be wherever is most dependent sometimes it does seem to be not loculated but just tending to favor certain areas right um but yeah wherever looks good i'll I'll go for it i guess the one thing i was taught is um stay at least if maybe a couple centimeters away from the, um, from the umbilicus, because that's, that's where you have more, more vessels. Yeah. Unless you go right in the middle line, cause the linea alba is, uh, um, avascular, but that's a, maybe a bit of a more advanced thing to do. But I, I really think, you know, nine and a half times out of 10, you can just go way out in the flanks and avoid the whole issue. Right. I usually will, you could tell me what you think. Um, I'll, after I find a spot with like the curvilinear probe or whatever I'm using, um, I'll grab the vascular probe, throw that on the same spot and, uh, just put Doppler over the sub Q and just make sure there's not some vessel hiding there. Oh, that's an interesting idea. I've, uh, not often found something that was not obvious just on, on B mode, but uh, occasionally. And again, I think if you're going to have a complication with this, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and then, so once you, once you get in there, you'll, um, you usually hook up to, you know, wall suction and just drain off whatever you have. Yeah. So, well, that's interesting. I've done it two different ways. It sort of depends on how much you're going to take off, right? If you're going to take off a small amount, you can hook up. Most of the kits have this bag with a one-way valve and a stopcock where you can hook a large syringe up to it and sort of aspirate 60 cc's at a time and then either use the one-way valve or the stopcock to sort of draw it out and then flush it down into a drainage bag. Um, but yeah, if you're really going to take off more than that, uh, more than a little bit. Yeah. Well, we get these, uh, I, and I forget, somebody told me what they were called the other night and I cannot remember. I just call them that big jug we use for paracentesis, um, vacuum bottles. Yeah. It's like, well, no, it's not a vacuum bottle. It's like a five gallon or a five liter rather, um, container. It's got a purple oh, top in our place and it, it's like a suction canister, but it's, five liters. Um, it sits on the ground and you hook it up to wall suction. 
Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, the two ways I've done it, and I think the, the most common I've seen is, is vacuum bottles, mm-hmm. um, which is, is fine, but sometimes they're hard to come by and they're like glass and they're weird. Yeah. And the other option is just you hook it to the wall suction with a regular suction canister, which some people feel like is weird, but it's not more suction than you'd be using the vacuum bottle. And it's not like this is a sterile process anyways. You can right. just keep swapping out those. But I like the sound of that because if you're pulling out a lot, then you fill up those suction things kind of quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and so like this one the other night, we had just intended to do kind of diagnostic and maybe we'll pull a little bit off because uh, there was a decent pocket. And I ended up sitting there taking two liters off using the pull push with the syringe, uh, you know, method. And about halfway through, somebody pointed out, isn't there an easier way for you to do that? Yeah, I mean, there is if you're smart enough to think of it in advance, but we're almost almost done now. So, yeah, I usually will only use that for uh, for Thoras. But yeah. And then do you um, do you always give albumin? After you take off a bunch of fluid, or do you have a cutoff? Or yeah, so you know, we were talking about this the other night too. I had a student with me. The guideline, the rule, I guess, is greater than five liters off. You should replace some albumin. Um, I actually, I took two liters off of this patient and gave them some albumin back, simply because they were kind of borderline hypotensive to begin with from their septic shock, um, and then we ended up having to start some pressors. And I felt like, well, some albumin is probably going to help with that as well. So we did give some albumin back. But but normally I don't, as a rule, unless either I get hemodynamic instability or I'm taking off a large volume. Yeah, that's exactly the rule that I learned. At five liters, um, give them back uh, about eight grams of albumin per liter. So you you mean you jump right to whatever that is, 45. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. I, I think a lot of people will give it at less or, I mean, certainly you can use some, some judgment for it, but. So do, when you give albumin, do you have a preference between the um, 5% or the concentrated 25%? I give 25%. Yeah. Um, I guess that just, that's what makes sense. I mean, if you're trying to kind of increase the oncotic pressure right. so you don't lose fluid somewhere, but uh, I mean, I, I, I realize there is evidence for this, but I, I can't help it. It feels a bit like voodoo, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean that's how I am with albumin in general, right? Is 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 one better than the other? I don't know. I had an attending one time who told me, um, you know, twenty five percent albumin is for people who need albumin, like their albumin's low because they have liver disease, um, whereas five percent is for albumin that you're using sort of as a resuscitation fluid. Um, yeah. But I don't know that it really makes that much of a difference. You know, you're still increasing the oncotic pressure. Now, I guess if the patient was fluid depleted anyway, then 5% would probably give you, uh, would, would make more sense because you're getting the oncotic pressure, but also the fluid. Whereas if they're fluid depleted, they don't have a lot in the third space to pull from with the 25%. Let's talk about labs real quick. So I, I don't do as many diagnostics as you do probably. And so I'm always having to look up because I don't remember what to do. And thankfully our um, pulmonary MICU service has a nice order set built into our EMR for this. And so I usually just sort of crib off of them. But uh, for the folks out there who this comes up and maybe they don't have such a great resource, what do you, what do you typically send when you send fluid for diagnosis? 
Uh, I'm far from an expert. And uh, if there's somebody involved like GI who's asked for something special or, you know, afterwards who wants to add it on, then I, I'll certainly def- defer to them. Um, and I do think that there is sometimes a tendency when you, anyone's getting fluid from a body compartment that's kind of inconvenient to just like test it for everything under the sun, which you can kind of argue for and against. But um, similar to Thora, I mean, I think your main goals are generally to um, determine if it's more kind of a you know, transudative versus an exudative process and whether it's infectious. So um, like a protein and albumin in all cases, always a cell count and a gram stain and a culture. Um, And then beyond that, it's kind of determined by if you're looking for something specific. If it's like a cirrhotic who comes in every month and a half and you kind of know their disease, I I really think that may be plenty. Um, You're just trying to rule out like an SBP. If it's something like a new presentation of ascites, um, you may want to get like cytology or flow cytometry. And I try to send um, extra fluid for that. Um, And then things like uh, glucose and LDHs and and who knows what else, um, I'll often throw in if somebody asks for it but not necessarily just routinely so do you use the sag the albumin gradient right yeah Yeah. i mean sort of the equivalent of like a lights criteria for athora yeah just something to i would say that's something to maybe do for every tap yeah just to prove it is what you think it is sure all right so kind of moving northward um we could think about thoracentesis um this uh you know, it's similar, but obviously some anatomic differences. And it definitely overlaps with chest tubes, which, you know, are just thoracentesis where you leave in a drain. Um, is this something you do a lot of? Yeah, I actually do uh, a fair amount of thoras, especially with drain placement. Um, and actually, I think, so I do some of these in the surgical ICU, but I do, I tend to do a lot more of these in the neuro ICU um, because I think. The big benefit there is you have a patient who's volume overloaded with big pleural effusions, who's having trouble oxygenating. Um, you know, in most environments, you hit those guys with Lasix and diurese them uh, versus some of these folks in the neuro ICU, you don't want to diurese because of their, uh, you don't want to have a bunch of fluid shifting in their brain. Uh, and so we will tend to just go in and get that fluid out manually with a drain um, if it's causing uh, oxygenation or ventilation issues uh, in a patient that maybe we're a little loath to diurese. Oh, I'm sort of surprised to hear that. Um, yeah, thoras are probably um, one of my kind of least frequently done procedures of the ones that I've considered in my, you know, in my wheelhouse. Um, and I pretty much never do chest tubes. Is every Anywhere I've worked, it's usually been some other service that uh, – kind of owns those, whether mm-hmm. it's surgery or like an interventional pulmonology or, or somebody else. I'd like to add it to my bag of tricks, but by and large, um, I don't. When you are doing Thoras, um, are you generally using ultrasound? I kind of feel like that's become the standard of care. So much the same with Paras. I tend to use it to identify a good fluid pocket. And then, um, unless it's something that looks really tricky, I, I don't tend to use visualization. So, right. um, again, identifying the pocket, but then sort of going in blind. Um, Are you using the same the same kit? The yeah. Safety synthesis. Yep. For, for well, for the most part, if I'm doing a, a simple thoracentesis, 
um, and draining uh, infusion and leaving a pigtail catheter in, then safety synthesis is sort of the go-to. Um, if I've got a little bit more volume or I've got um, something that's maybe got blood in it or, you know, that's going to be thicker and potentially clog off a, a small catheter, um, then that's when I would either go for a large bore chest tube or something in between like a Wayne um, pneumothorax catheter, which is a little bit bigger. I think it's like a, I think it's like a 14 French. Um, so it's smaller, smaller than a chest tube, but bigger than a pigtail. Will you leave the safety synthesis drain itself as a, a chest tube? Yeah. Yeah. Pigtail. Okay. Typically if I do a thoracentesis, um, I'll leave a drain in. I usually do not leave a drain with paracentesis, um, but I usually do with thoris. Okay. What, how do you position people? I mean, I think this is a little different from, you know, in mm. like the clinic, people would do these, you know, usually sitting up and posteriorly. And then so many of our patients are, you know, intubated or sedated or something. Where do you usually go in and how do you try to position them? So, again, some of it will be dependent on where the pocket is. But typically, um, you know, I'll go in on a side. This is sort of mid-axillary line, um, plus or minus. Uh, but up high, kind of, you know, third or fourth intercostal space to to get far away from the diaphragm. Uh, again, right. depending on how big the pocket is and where it is on the ultrasound. So just kind of out on the, the side of their chest. Yeah. Do you, like, do you like tie up the arm or something? So, yeah, if I have a patient who can't cooperate, uh, like they're intubated and sedated or... Um, you know, maybe they're just a little bit too confused to, to do so. Um, what I usually do is just put a soft wrist restraint on and then hold it up with the, up the head of the bed and then tie the restraint part to either there's a little hook sometimes on the back side of the bed where like you would push it. Um, or sometimes to the, the boom in the ICU room or the wall, uh, places where they would, you know, attach like suction canisters or whatever. Uh, just to sort of hold it up out of the way. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's a little inconvenient. And I think that position does limit um, the size of a pocket you can drain. Certainly mm-hmm. if they could sit bolt upright and you can go in the back, you'd yeah. probably get a smaller pocket. But it's just so hard to do anything else. I, I heard one time someone tell me that they would put the patient on their side, like in a lateral decubitus position. And go in the and back? tap posteriorly. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, I think I tr- I tried looking at it once and it was just it was just super weird. But I guess that's an option. Um, and you'd think that the best pocket would be uh, when they're supine, a patient sitting quite upright, yeah. so it's more dependent. But I guess I find that it sort of varies, like upright-ish certainly, but sometimes somewhere in the middle is where it seems to be largest. Yeah. Well, and one thing too. Now, now I've never done a true like patient sitting up, leaning over a table, posterior thoracentesis. Um, but I was doing one one time on a patient who was intubated and sort of on their side and the pocket was a little more posterior and one of our surgery fellows was helping me and we were going sort of mo- more posterior than I normally would have. And I remember saying, you know, Hey, this, this feels weird. Like, it's not like I'm getting resistance, but it feels almost like, you know, the feeling you get when the needle kind of works its way over top of the rib, that almost rough feeling. Yeah, uh, I was getting that and a, a little bit more resistance than I was used to. And he said that sometimes that happens because the lat, the latissimus muscle in the back is so much thicker than the 
I guess what's that serratus on the side. So you're going yeah, through wow. more muscle and you get that more kind of gristly feeling sometimes, which I thought was interesting. So yeah. I don't have a good frame of reference. Like I said, I've never done right. one, um, like a true posterior one to compare it to. Right. But. And then for suction, I will exclusively use a hand pump with usually if you have a little uh, one-way valve thing, although if you don't, you can just pump with whatever, a three-way stopcock or something. Do you, I mean, do you ever put these on something like wall suction? Yeah, usually I do actually. Now, not, not See, to not me, that always. feels like too much suction. <laughs> yeah, not always. If it's uh, just a small effusion, then sometimes we'll hook it to a bag or to a Pluravac, but not just leave it to water seal. But almost always, I'll put it to a Pluravac, and if it's a decent amount, I'll put it on, you know, negative 20 centimeters of suction um, just to kind of drain it out. And, and again, and maybe it's that by the time I'm putting this tube in, we've got a patient who's in sort of distress, right? Um, and so maybe that's the difference is that. Well, and, and you know what the other difference, uh, you said negative 20 centimeters, which is, I think is quite reasonable for whatever reason, if I'm going to put it on the wall, I have a, this urge to be like, Oh, just put it on like, like maximal suction, <laughs> which is probably too much. <laughs> so are you, when you do, are you hooking it like to a suction canister then? Well, so like, that's what I would do for a para. Yeah. Like I, I would, you know, it would be like a lot of suction. Oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah. you're right. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to put it on in the chest, I, I mean, I've, uh, you can control the level of suction on the thing. So, I mean, that would be maybe quite reasonable. Yeah. So, I'll usually hook it to like a Pluravac or like an atrium um, drainage box or whatever you call it and dial the suction down to negative 20 centimeters. That makes Yeah. Treating yeah. it more like a chest tube. Right. That's, right. I think, quite reasonable. I just, I'm just not in the habit of leaving you know, drains in. So I don't really think that way, yeah. but, and then I've also seen people, especially for very large ones, just kind of, you know, maybe put it on a, a Pluravac or something and, and just let it gravity drain or mm-hmm. however long it cares to take. Do you have a maximum amount, you know, like you'll clamp it after a certain amount because you're afraid of uh, oh, you know, re-expansion yeah. pulmonary edema? Yeah. Um, sort of depends on how fast it's coming out too, I think. But I, I think, you know, 1500, two liters, somewhere in there. Um, I think I'd want to slow things down. Um, so, would you just clamp it and give them X number of time to marinate on it? or? Yeah, probably. Will you, if you have bilateral effusions, will you tap both at once? Or are you, are you afraid mm, of? I've only pneumos? done that one time. And I honestly can't remember off the top of my head now why we did it. Typically, we I would just do one. If it was just an effusion. I mean, if it was like, you know, uh, like a trauma patient with pneumothoraces or or something, that's different. But if it was just an effusion, then I think typically we'll just do one. Yeah. Now, will you use much the same process if you are going for a pneumo? Uh, Yeah. So it sort of depends if it's how how big a pneumo. um, I mean, I think if it's big enough that we're putting something in then yeah, probably we would start with the, the pigtail catheter, um, unless it was causing some, you know, serious problems, like almost like a tension type of picture. Uh, and then we would typically move to something bigger. Oh, so you would use a larger tube if it's a worse pneumothorax? Yeah. Just cause you really don't want it like not working at some point. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, and also depending on if I think it's a solely a pneumothorax or if there's possibly blood as well. Because again, I think I worry about when there's blood in the chest clogging up the smaller catheters. So a large chest tube is usually better at evacuating blood. Right. Yeah, and that was always the argument in a trauma world. That, right. You know, there's always some blood. Although I understand that they're starting to question that a little bit. Yeah. So interestingly, have you seen a lot of um, you've seen a lot of COVID patients, right? A good number. So we had a patient not too long ago who had post-COVID lung and got a chest tube at an outside hospital for a presumed tension pneumothorax that was actually placed into the lung parenchyma Mm -hmm. um, because they were unable to sort of distinguish on the x-ray what was COVID lung. Was there like a bulla or something? Yeah, versus... uh, pneumothorax. So I actually didn't have a pneumothorax. So uh, yeah, that's always the classic thing with people with very bad, like bullous emphysema yeah. or something. Uh, you know, on X-ray, I mean, you even got to squint sometimes on CT. But I mean, it really, really looked like pneumos, but it's part of the lung. It's just a, it's just like a giant pocket. And yeah, you put a drain in it. I mean, you just created a, a fistula. <laughs> yeah, and so this guy came to us for that. Um, thoracic surgery took him to the operating room and said, I mean, basically they treated him like a chest trauma, right? He was like a stab wound um, because he has this chest tube that's, it was in his lung parenchyma and, and bleeding all around. And, and, and this guy, they said, luckily he had enough uh, scar tissue that it sort of tamponed off the bleeding. Hmm. Yeah. I've heard it suggested that, um, you know, lung ultrasound can be a really useful thing there because, while on something like x-ray, it may be really hard to tell what's a you know plural pocket and what's parenchymal, you should still have lung sliding in the case of, you know, a bullous lung lesion. Mm-hmm. Probably. I mean, it's not impossible. You have, um, you have like some sticky plur or something, but kind of as a general rule. Okay. Um, let us think about lumbar punctures. Um you do a lot of neurocritical care. Is this something you do a lot? So I actually don't do lumbar punctures at all. Um, mm. We have talked about it, but so typically if patients in the neuro ICU, if they need a lumbar puncture, the neurosurgeons or the neurology residents do them because they need the experience. Ah. Um, and then if they are not able to do them, then our uh, anesthesia neurocritical care attendings will do them. So we've just never been credentialed for them just because there's not a lot of opportunity for us to do it. Um, but we've, we've talked about it and it's something I would like to learn to do, but. Yeah, I, I, I do them. Um, not super frequently. Uh, and I mean, I certainly think all of these are very cultural and, and who does what, but just like most of these procedures, I, I think there's utility in, in being able to, you know, offer them to your ICU patients instead of trying to, track someone else down who, who can do them. Like, I mean, a lot of, especially smaller hospitals, like IR is the fallback for any procedure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be a pain in the butt to get IR to do something, especially on more of an urgent basis. And, you know, some things you really, you should have sooner, you know, you want to get a sample, you know, maybe before you give antibiotics or things like that. So it's nice to be able to do, um, I do, yeah, I do them. It's, uh, when you can, it's great to do them with patients sitting up. It is always easier. 
Uh, it's easy to find the midline. It really does a good job flexing the lumbar spine. Of course, many of our patients can't do that. Although sometimes more of them can do it than you think. Even perhaps if they're somewhat sedated or altered or even on the vent, sometimes they can sit on the edge of the bed and maybe lean over a table for you. But otherwise, it's, you know, lying on their side in bed. You really need help to really scrunch them up into a fetal position. The more you can open up uh, and those posterior spinal spaces, the better. I had one anesthesia um, attending who liked to do them with kind of a um, kind of a splayed position where they you put just their top knee up and the other mm. one down. It seemed a little easier to get into, but it, it looked difficult because one of the real challenges with these is finding the midline and not getting off it which doesn't seem like it would be hard, um, but it, it can be, especially bigger patients or especially if they have any amount of like a scoliosis. Um, I mean, if you can't hit the midline, then you're not, you're never, you're never going to get the spine. Right. So it's nice to really get everything lined up. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's just a matter of, of kind of finding your spot. And I find them to be frustrating procedures sometimes. Um, because it often just feels like you're fishing. It's not really a guided procedure. There are ways of guiding it. I don't really have any of those skills. You can use ultrasound. I've never learned that. And of course you can do it under flora or something, which I don't do either. Um, but I mean, you get to know the anatomy and and you can kind of try to work your way in, but it still often feels like you're just digging around and then you eventually get it. And if you don't get it, or if you do get it, it still tends to feel like you don't know why, (laughs) Like, oh, yeah. you don't know why you're not getting it, and then you get it, and you don't know what you did differently either. Or you help someone else out, and maybe you get it, and they're like, what did you do? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> so it's uh, it doesn't have that satisfying feeling of a, a skilled procedure, like a, a line or something, where mm-hmm. you watched it go in, in my opinion. And it is a skill. You know, some people are excellent at it, but I'm not sure most of them can describe what they're good at either. It's just a feel thing. Yeah, I, w- I always like to say, um, you know, especially when a student or a um, a new new newer provider or whatever can't get a procedure and asks me to, to step in and help, and I get it, and they are always like, you know, how'd you do that? And I always like to say, well, it's it's good to be good, but it's better to be lucky. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think you're right. A lot of our procedures, it's not simply luck. It is it is skill, and and sometimes it's that skill you can't quite put your finger on, right? It's just, I've done 500 of these. Uh, and so I don't know, I don't really know what to tell you I did differently, but I just, it's like, like muscle memory at some point, you know, that I just, my hands know what to do. Yeah. It's sort of ineffable, Yeah, but I mean, the only tricks I have are get, you know, really make an effort to curve that spine, really try to stay in, in the midline. If you're not getting it, try, try a different you know, inner space, you can go up one or something. Mm -hmm. Um, it, if you, if you hit bone pretty early, that's not the spot you need to fish around until you can go deeper. And it is usually deeper than you think it should be. Like you, you may feel like you are going to come out the stomach, um, with the depth (laughs) that you're in with the needle, but that, I mean, the, you know, the spinal space just is kind of deep relative to, you know, the, the skin on the back. Um, so, you know, that's what I got. Well, spinal needles are long for a reason, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, get comfortable. I often sit. Um, one of the advice I got early on was, is all about positioning, not the patients, but yours, because you may be here a while. And uh, if you're yeah. not comfortable, then you won't be able to willing to <laughs> spend the time. 
Um, and then like as far once you're in, um, I would say pretty much always uh, check an opening pressure, which not everyone does and probably not every patient needs, but um, the ones who need it may not be obvious. Like sometimes it'll surprise you. We had a random neurosurgical patient not long ago who got a LP for other reasons. The opening pressure was like 42 or something and it just blew everyone's hmm. mind. I mean, you know, you just, you never know. Um, so just, just get in the habit of doing it. I think, um, you do have to uncurl the legs because if they're scrunched up too much, it'll, it'll elevate it falsely. Um, and if you did tap them with them sitting up, that'll be off. So you'll have to actually lay them down then to, to get a proper opening pressure. Um, and then, you know, the, the tube people get confused about as well. So, you know, the way I learned it, you get four tubes. Your first and last are for cell counts because um, it's kind of like drawing two blood cultures. You want to prove that if there's blood in the first one, it clears or at least mostly clears by the last one, implying that it's just trauma from the tap. Um, whereas if it's consistent, then there may actually be blood in the CSF. And then the other two are for your other studies. And maybe one can be mostly for uh, cultures for your micro and the other one for things like glucose and protein and other studies. Um, depending on how many weird studies you expect to get, the more fluid you should probably try to get. You don't want to have to be coming back here because you need one more CC for some obscure study that's being sent to the moon. Um, uh, and that's pretty much what I got. Uh, worst case, you know, someone like IR can usually help you out. Yeah. Uh, all right. Maybe the last thing we can talk about today would be bronchoscopy. Sure. Flexible bronchoscopy. Um, you do these often? I do these a lot. Yeah. Know. This is probably, other than lines, this is probably my most frequent procedure. Yeah. Again, I think kind of cultural. Um, I actually really almost never do them here. There's an active uh, interventional pulmonology department who's really into them. Um, what are you usually doing them for? Um. Usually for therapeutic reasons. So patient who's got a uh, lung down on x-ray and it's blocked off by mucus plugging or something like that. Um, I mean, I will get a BAL typically when I'm down in the lung if stuff looks gross. But I think I've read pretty decent literature that shows um, that you don't, that a BAL is not really any better than a good sputum suction in a tracheal sputum sample uh, in terms of diagnosis. So I will, n I will very rarely do one simply to get a, a sample. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that, <laughs> I think that a lot of Bronx, depending on the center you're in are done mostly because somebody wants to do a Bronx, especially if you have like um, pulmonology fellows, people like that. I mean, no fellow has ever said no to a Bronx. They're just sort of, I think, fun for people. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, mostly I agree. It's for like mucus plugging, um, which really I think should be like a, like a big one. Like you have a whole, whole lung or uh, at least a whole lobe that seems to be down on an x-ray. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I've spent a little time with the literature on this. I think that is what it supports. Anything smaller than that, I mean, what are you doing here? Like, right, you right. can't cure pneumonia with sucking out little bits of pus from small airways. It's just going to come back. It's an infection. Right. <laughs> but if they've decompensated because they have got a whole lot of lung that's, you know, flat, maybe you can temporize them. Yeah, we do get, um, I don't want to say a lot, but we get a, a fair amount of requests from the primary surgical service saying, can you bronch this guy? And when I look at the x-ray, I see, well, I don't really see an indication for bronching here. Um, 
And so sometimes that has to be a conversation. But yeah, I agree with you. If I'm going to initiate it, it's for complete lung whiteout or at least major lober whiteout. Yeah. And honestly, even some of those cases, I think you, you could you could get away with not doing it yeah. um, with just, you know, good suctioning, maybe some lavage. It's nice if you have those directional suction catheters um, with a little coude on the tip because, mm. you know, usually the regular ones go to the right side because yeah. that's the right. bigger, straighter airway. But if you have a, like a left-sided collapse, you can aim it that way. And um, I've had, you know, pretty good success with a lot of that. Um, yeah, and I, th- I would think the choice to bronch or do some sort of other less aggressive um, pulmonary toileting, I guess, would, for better or for worse, for me at least, falls on, are they currently intubated? So if the patient's yeah. <laughs> intubated and there's an issue, fine. Just grab grab a scope real quick. I'll, I'll go down there. I can be in and out in 30 seconds and, and clean them out good. If they're not intubated, well, that's a different story, right? How much do I want to, you know, is this a patient that couldn't tolerate an awake bronch? Is this a patient that I feel is bad enough that we should intubate and sedate simply for the bronch with the plans of trying to extubate them after the procedure? Or is this somebody who, you know, we say, well, why don't we just try some, you know, hypertonic saline nebs and or mucamist and some BiPAP and some cough assist and and just really good uh, chest physiotherapy and see if we can open this up first. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't do kind of awake on an intubated bronx in any case. And I mean, you could also argue, um, you know, bronchoscopy, it can be a bit invasive as well. I mean, it is generally pretty safe. As someone who's on like a lot of vent support, it's a little bit of a, of a hit to them. I mean, the suction tends to cause some de-recruitment. Um, it, you know, the, the tube does limit ventilation. So if they're already kind of acidotic, um, so there's that as well. Yeah. Um, I guess the other time when I think bronchoscopy is, is handy in more a utilitarian way is if you're having some kind of issues with um, uh, the airway, for instance, uh, sometimes it just tubes are being weird. They, they're like, maybe they're, they seem to have an obstruction or like you're trying to advance them because they're high and they kind of won't. Just weird things like that. Sometimes it's really nice to just run a bronch down and be able to see what you're doing or maybe make direct adjustments under visualization. Yeah. Uh, strangest bronch case I ever had was a patient who had had a TVAR repair for a um, aortic aneurysm in the past. So I can't, I can't remember how recent the TVAR was. Shows up with sort of all these um, sort of vague chest complaints and um, thoracic surgery thinks he has some sort of esophageal perforation. Takes him to the operating room, can't find anything wrong with the esophagus. Um, comes back to the ICU, still having issues. We go down with the bronchoscope and find he has a bronchomediastinal fistula um, that, I kid you not, was large enough to pass the bronchoscope through (laughs) into the mediastinum. And you could visualize the aorta and you could see the graft, the T-Vart graft, eroding through the aorta and it had caused this fistula. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, the um, the other kind of practical aspect of one to bronch, I find, is like how much of a pain in the butt it is. Um, we now have um, 
disposable bronchoscopes mm-hmm. that attach to our our glide scope our video oh, yeah. uh, their endoscopy device which it really is it's quite easy it's just sitting in the unit you just hook it up and throw it on it's mm-hmm. almost like just taking a peek um so that kind of facilitates doing things a little more quick, quickly and easily like my last place to, to bronx someone you had to borrow like the whole tower from the or and it was always like bending over backwards you had to walk down there oh, and yeah. beg to have it and then you got to personally return it and like bless it with holy water and <laughs> right stuff. right so i mean <laughs> those kind of affect your decision making as well yeah. you'd be like you know what it's not worth it right right yeah we have we have disposable bronx as well now ours come with it's almost like an ipad mounted on a pole um that it hooks up to so it's not the same screen as the glide scope but we have them they're in the unit and they're yeah pretty easy i think to it, I've, I've used that one as well and i mean it's not as good as like a full no it's harder to control setup. i think um but i think for these like the things we're talking about it's it's usually adequate yeah you're just you know getting into big airways you're doing some suction some of them don't have you know quite as much like big channels and stuff if you're trying to do pulmonary toilet but i'm by and large i think it's fine right yeah, our interventional palm guys and our lung transplant guys still use the real the real deal um, scope. I mean, I think these disposable ones don't really have the same utility as far as you know the tools and stuff that you can use that I wouldn't be using anyway, like forceps and biopsy devices and stuff like that. But like you said, for basically going down, cleaning out the lung, taking a sample, opening up, and re-recruiting lung space, the disposable ones work fine. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this has been a nice little survey of some you know, non-vascular things to do in the ICU. Any more thoughts on this? No, I think that covers it really well. Uh, we should do an airway uh, episode sometime. All this Bronx stuff has gotten me interested, and we should talk about airway management, but I think that's a whole episode of itself. Yeah, I think that maybe that can be the next one. Yeah. All right, Brian. I'll see you then. All right. Thanks, Ike.